Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is the 14th of June. It is a Sunday. I don't know what the weather is like because recording this at 1am in the morning. But Michael, how has your day been so far in the last 60 minutes? We've had thunder and lots of heavy rain. So I'm happy about that. Clear it up and tomorrow should be a lovely day. We've got a couple of things we want to run through today. We've got Leo and his calls for a more representative public service of racial minorities. We want to look at BBC's coverage of the protests slash riots uh, yesterday and the one last week from the Black Lives Matter crowd and just compare a little bit about how they're uh, put together. The Irish Times have put together a couple of editorials and an editorial view on the taking down of statues. So we want to talk a little about that, uh, because they're garbage for the most part. And then we have a little bit about the technology in your home, which listens to you constantly and is now being fed appropriate political messages. But Michael, before we get onto that, there's a really small thing. I just want to get your read on this. Go ahead. People are attacking Luke Min Flanagan online. And do you know what Flanagan did? He went... He did a podcast or an interview on with, in his underpants, if that's what you're referring to. No, that was, that was with the European... No, that just slid off him like water. Much like that documentary which shows him standing in front of a Nazi flag. We just don't talk about that anymore. Mm-hmm. No, what he did was he submitted a parliamentary question to the EU asking the EU if they had a definition of what a fish was. Oh, right. And he's been ripped apart for that. People are saying it's a waste of money. It's ridiculous. But I saw that and I sort of went... That actually seems like an eminently reasonable question. He asked, does it have a legal definition of what a fish is? And has that definition changed over time? And if it has, how has it changed? So to the my reading of that, like if you're doing legal work or you're doing work on treaties or trade deals, that's a perfectly reasonable question to ask to me anyway. Because you can have, you can have a definition of fish, let's say, that uh, didn't include certain things or that did include certain things that you wouldn't think of as fish because someone thought it would be a good idea and that can actually lead to a situation where there's a great deal of money on the table one way or the other but what do you think i mean people are slamming them for it well it's 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 an interesting one because as far as i understand it there is no working definition in science of what is a fish but it's a word we use we it's like Justice Scalia and pornography, we know it. We know what one is when we see it. But and I'm open to correction here. But my understanding is there is actually no scientific definition of a fish. So presumably there has to be a legal definition of it, and that's going to affect uh, quotas and stocks and stock management in the EU. Leo uh, Ming is uh, he's uh, an MEP for the North and West, isn't it? He so he places like, for example. So Killy Beggs, which is, I think, still Ireland's largest fishing port, would be part of his purview. And the trials and tribulations of fishermen in Ireland generally. So it's probably quite, it, I don't know, but I think it sounds like it may be a perfectly reasonable thing to ask. I, I, I saw it. And, you know, when you see something and everyone is laughing about something and you just sort of stand there going, no, I think that's actually a good point. But you also have that sort of, am I the one who's wrong? Is this actually ridiculous? But it, it also it turns out that the EU does not have a working definition of what a fish is, which is shocking considering some of the things the EU has rather stringent uh, ideas of. Well, yes, but and considering that it 
regulates in fairly great detail the the catching and the distribution of those things that we take out of the sea. You'd imagine that they'd have to build it. I mean, I'm just wondering, is an eel a fish? Uh, there is, people may or may not know, there's a very large, the historically large business of eel fishing in Loch Ness, I wonder. Is that covered by quotas? What is a fish? Lobster is not a fish. Lobster is a spider, isn't it? Or is it prawns? Are they spiders? I have no idea. They're arthropods of some kind. I also suspect that most of the people mocking them don't actually have any idea. No. But listen, Ming is one of those easy targets, isn't it? Because he just... He, he's one of those people who's legitimate. You're, you're just allowed to dislike. I have yeah, to I say... Mean, look, I've, I've said many things about Luke Ming that have been not terribly complimentary. But at the same time, if he's right, he's right. If he's right, he's right. So. And I, I have to say, many moons ago, I, I, to the extent that I was aware of Ming... Uh, I was aware of him as this guy whose principal interest in life was Schmokey. And uh, the then very lonely battle to get to marijuana, I suppose, decriminalised first in, in Ireland. He's now much, he's interested in many more things. But I, I he, he, hearing an interview on the radio of this guy, he's talking about subsidiarity and local government and the reforms that our government that were being proposed at the time by uh, Big Phil Hogan, which then came in. And it was the single best, most coherent critique and analysis I'd, of the subject I'd heard. And he said, I have to run now, blah, blah. And they said, thank you, Ming Flanagan. And I thought, my God, that was, that was Ming Flanagan. Wow. So the guy actually, he has moments of lucidity, certainly. I, I do also give him credit for when he was in the doll and he refused to wear a suit. And he they constantly complained about it. And eventually he was forced to go and dress appropriately and he came back with a three-piece uh, suit that he'd had louis copeland make uh, made of pure hemp <laughs> and it was it was actually a beautiful suit mm-hmm. but it was also you know i i i can appreciate a sense of style like that but no, i was just curious it's um it's a really minor thing it kind of reminded me of um, Carol Rove when people started jumping on him for using unknown unknowns. That always made sense to me. Perfect sense. Eventually it got back to someone who actually knew what they were talking about and went, no, the concept of an unknown unknown is actually immensely important in any sort of strategic or work or the philosophy of strategy. So no, he was absolutely correct and you're just uneducated. Speaking as you know, somebody, a little bit of a background in philosophy and history, the, the it, it made absolute sense to me that you you know what you know, you know what you don't. Maybe also know that most of the, you, the biggest problems you're going to get are because the things that you don't know that you don't know. Yeah, you can you can plan for a known unknown. An unknown unknown is very difficult to plan for because you don't know it exists. Yes. So it's going from from fish to most people, I think, a trivial issue. Although to many people who make their living in it, far less trivial. To something kind of equally as trivial, technology. Yes. Particularly those household assistants, those Alexa, Siri, Google Assistant, those things. I came across a, a bit of news there during the week, which I thought was at the end of last week. I thought it was very weird. And it was this, that um, Amazon, Apple and Google, who are the, the people who make those things. Amazon has Alexa, uh, Google has Google Assistant and Apple has Siri. All San Francisco companies, all quite left wing socially mm-hmm. but quite left-wing socially so they were always going to come out and give their support in the george floyd thing and they had they'd come out and said that they would be giving donations to racial justice 
But it turns out they are also those assistants, those voice assistants. They're also using them to spread awareness of the uh, Black Lives Matter movement, Michael. Yeah. Which is to say, if you ask these things, or they hear you and think it's a question to them about Black Lives Matter, or you use the phrase, all lives matter near them, they will set you straight. They will tell you uh, about Black Lives Matter. They will give you the, the approved line. Well, that's what we all we have we all dream of, isn't it? Having a, a vacuum cleaner or a toaster that is that is in the position to make you a better person. So if you say if you say all lives matter to Amazon's Alexa, it will say all lives matter. However, black lives are disproportionately in danger in the fight against systemic racist racism and injustice, which sounds to me like it's chiding you. Yeah, I'd like to if you ask the follow up question, could you could you provide some data for that? That it would be, I'm sure, really capable of doing so. Or as they say, as the, as the young people like to say, could you give me a link? And they're all like that. If you say all lives matter, they will give you an explanation of why it's wrong. None of them will explain anything about it other than that. They'll just direct you to the Black Lives Matter website. But whatever about it, it's a really, it's a really trivial thing in one sense. But on the other hand, this is a piece of technology you pay for. And you buy to make your life easier or to organise things. And you bring it into your home. Yeah. And then these companies, like that is, regardless of whether you support the BLM movement or not, that is a political opinion. That is a biasing of information based on political ideology. And the idea that they're willing to do that to their customers, like do whatever you want. Is it like if you want to donate millions to Black Lives Matter as a company? Okay, fair enough. You get that money from consumers, but it's your money. But at that point, and I hate making this comparison. I don't think I've ever made this comparison on the show before. But it is somewhat Orwellian, Orwellian that you would take something into your home, it will monitor you, and then it will chide you if you don't give the correct view to it. Yeah. And it will tell you that this is the view. That just... I am uncomfortable with that. Also, if they'll do it for that, what else are they doing it for? What else? Because they don't have to tell you that they're doing it. Exactly. They've told us this. Because they are, they're going. They're doing a little bit of moral peacocking and, and and showing off how how good they are in this particular moment, this particular historic moment. But what other stuff have they done that I haven't told us about? I just find the idea of a thing in your house that's listening to you kind of creepy in the first place. I do. I do remember when it came out that all of these types of things were recording people. That it was being fed back to certain people who'd listened to what you were saying. Now they were doing it so that they could increase the machine's ability to understand the human voice when it's, you know, muffled or unclear. Yeah. But in order to do that, it had to be given to real people who could then tell the machines what was actually being said. And people were shocked, outraged yeah. that these devices that listened to them were in fact listening to them. And you like. <laughs> I mean, there's the old saying, take a scorpion onto your back. But that's not even taking a scorpion onto your back. No. What did you expect was happening here? But at the same time, I mean, do we think that uh, when Google is doing its uh, Google searches that the algorithms are produ- are absolutely neutral and every it's just a question of pure, simple math, whatever comes up first in the search, or that uh, none of these companies are tweaking the kinds of things that you're going to see or kinds of information that you're more likely to to get yeah I, I maybe they are but i i would be surprised if they were i mean it's also like the way this is being presented business insider presented this as trained to rebut all lives matter phrase 
Well, it does sound a bit like that. It's the, that kind of thing that there may be some rather simplistic uh, people out there, probably white people, who think that it's a reasonable thing to say that, oh, well, yes, but all lives matter and that that is that they don't understand that that is actually a problematic position and is actually hiding what is fundamentally a racist position because it's quite creating an equivalency between the kinds of difficulties faced by African-Americans and people who have white privilege. Like I wouldn't, I hate these things. I would never let one of them into my house. I, in fact, have one that someone gave me as a gift that I've never opened and I'm just waiting until I can pawn it off on someone because it sits there just totally unopened because I don't like the concept of them. But this makes me dislike the concept of them in a way I hadn't even had to consider before. Is it maybe, is it a signpost to the future? Is this the direction these things are going to keep going? In? And are we are we looking at groups that are essentially going, I mean, there's a, there's a sense that these groups, there are technology. There are these tech companies that are that are effectively monopolies in their area. But then every time there's been an effective monopoly before, some people have said, "Oh, this is impossible. This can never fail." And then within a couple of years, it's gone bang. Whether it's my, you know, MySpace or Bebo or whatever, then they're gone. Yahoo. Does anybody remember Yahoo anymore? <laughs> Once upon a time, it's still kicking around. That's still out. Still out there. I know, but you know what I mean. People have been talking about an alternative internet for so long now i mean in the sense of people whinging on the right about the terrible domination of the progressive left in technology and content platforms and things and yet it has it ever has has anybody ever produced a successful alternative i mean there was a, a while there when there was a an alternative twitter wasn't there oh um gab i think it was called i think it's still about the the problem they've always had is that Twitter has such a dominant market share. Not that it makes money. That would be a different thing. Yes. And uh, not that it's ever paid shareholders a dividend. I don't think Twitter has ever actually paid out a dividend. Not sure it's ever turned a profit. But they keep going. Whereas at least Facebook makes money. Oh, yes. Lots of money. Lots of money. Lots of money. Mr. Zuckerberg got it right. He did. Um. I don't know, I, just, I find the idea of something coming into your house and feeding you opinions which someone else has decided, it's not, not out of any concern for the consumer. It's not even feeding, it's teaching you. It does have that, it has that sort of tone where it's like, we don't want to say you're wrong, but that's a little bit of wrong think there. Yeah. Correct your thought patterns. <laughs> and I would prefer someone just saying, say this or be beaten. Because at least that's honest. Also, I kind of, you know, Je uh, Chesterton's, I think it was Chesterton's quote that the worst kind of all tyrant is the one who thinks it's for your own good. Yeah. Because a bandit will eventually stop because they have enough. Yeah. Whereas the person who thinks it's for your own good is going to be tireless in it because he thinks he's making your life better. I'm not sure if it's Chesterton. C.S. Lewis certainly said something very like that. Could be. That the, 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 the tyrant who's doing it to increase your own virtue is the worst because he will never stop. Whereas the one who's, you know, the, as you say, a brigand or a tyrant. Is... I, see, I think you're, you're probably right. It sounds slightly more like C.S. Lewis, although they, some of their quotes are actually very similar. Well, similar worldviews. And yeah, it's, but they're absolutely right. Because particularly in this disp dispensation we were talking about before, this, this sort of oddly religious tone they have, that the, the the particular religious paradigm they seem to have adopted is 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 rather a Calvinist one, 
where all those who have wrong think are basically it's the Calvinist idea of the total depravity of man and you you're you're either saved or you're not you're the elector you're not it's not that you can go to confession do penance get absolution and you're okay there is no okay for for the bad people it's only just a constant process of learning and relearning and being educated and re-educated but you know i for one welcome the advent of our google overlords if they're yeah if they're listening and i'm sure they are oh i'm sure they're always listening so that is a nice little bit of technology if you feel that you may not have the right opinions be sure to buy one I'm sure at the rate they're going, within a short number of years, they'll be able to correct all of those opinions. I am... Do you know, Michael, actually, I only found this the other day, that in Microsoft Word, you can actually... And it's... it's At the minute, it's opt-in. You don't have to go for it. But you can... Instead of just having Word check, you can have checks for gender bias and for discriminatory language and transphobia... And all of that stuff that you shouldn't have, Michael. And you can turn them all on. Well, it sounds like you turn them on and you turn you off. Because it, it's wonderful. You, you never have to think again. God, if is this available? Who, who has this software? Well, it's only on the desktop of Microsoft Word. It's not on the web uh, version from what I can see. And will this write articles for the, the Irish Times just like that for you? 800- I mean, it'll give you the, it'll give you the bones of them. Certainly. Well, after that, it's just colour, really, isn't it? I mean, you could probably write a David McWilliams column. Probably because you just give it a previous David McWilliams column and then, say, rearrange some of the words. Well, yeah, that'd be a short column. For the longer pieces, which you probably get more money from, you'd have to do it with the Finton one. Finton on, whatever it happens to be. Every time I see one of his pieces, and I see people commenting it, whether it's they're commenting positively or negatively, all I can think is, surely you read this last week, and the week before that, and the week before that, and why are you still here talking about it? But I don't know, Michael, I don't know. On the topic of the Irish Times, though, the Irish Times has views, Michael. Serious views. (laughs) Really? Serious views held by serious people, uh, presumably on statues and whether or not those statues can you know stay up or should come down now i will throw my hat you know into the ring here and say i think that their opinions are borderline illiterate written by people who know little to nothing about what they're talking about but have moderately strong temperamentally based ideological positions well okay so we have two. We have one from the uh, the Irish Times actual editorial board and one from the assistant editor of the Irish Times. The assistant editor of the Irish Times says that statues are not a neutral narration of complex events and the decision to build a public monument is always a political act. The editorial time says is titled The Statues Keep Falling And it says, the rereading of history is a constant process and no statue any more than any historical figure should be guaranteed a permanent place in the national pantheon. Now, this is coming about because of what we're seeing in in America, for some extent, with Confederate statues. But the British left have really taken it off 
like creating lists of statues they want to see torn down, which amusingly enough includes people that they misread the names of and includes the prime minister who ended slavery. But, you know, whatever, these things happen. And that led to, you know, Winston Churchill's statue being put into what looks like just a a steel sarcophagus, uh, as was the cenotap. Cenotape. Taff. Every every (laughs) time I say it incorrectly. I do, am I the only one when I hear people talk about this or write about it? Either they're fulminating against some 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 statue, which is I I will say for example, I Oliver Cromwell. No, they haven't been giving out about Oliver Cromwell, but say they had, or Christopher Columbus, you know, and Christopher Columbus, and he's a genocide, and he's a this, and he's that, and I, am I the only one to think? Yeah, lads, but. Uh, you do know that that isn't actually Christopher Columbus. That that is uh, that's a statue. That is actually like a, it's it's a big stone thing. It's not actually because I I I I do get the feeling at times that they have invested in these statues, uh, a form of life, that these things are actually those people at that time. But well, Gary, you do you have I I I haven't got it under me the. The, the Times article and how it describes what the statues mean. Oh, of course, Michael. Even if I didn't have it with me, I think I'd remember it due to the force of its writing. Yeah. And not the fact I read it, stopped, looked away and just went, horseshit. There is no escaping the reality that many of the statues causing offence to black communities are much more than commemorative. They honour and celebrate notional heroes and are as blunt and threatening as any poster that says... Black men know your place. They are, sorry, they are as 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 blunt and threatening as any poster. Well, okay, point. Stop. Just there. I can but interject. No, anyway, so go on. And their location in pride of public place rather than museums is an implicit political affirmation of that warped message. Uh, no, it's like do you remember the first uh, the, 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 when they were they were talking about the that. Statue of the the, the the guy in Br- in Bristol that was thrown into the River Avon, and I think it's an eighteenth century statue. He's an eighteenth century figure anyway, and it seemed to be rather a nice statue. And I think that that's not something we should completely discount either. The artistic value of the particular piece. They said, "How you think about this statue is how you think about slavery. How you feel about slavery." And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Oh, that was James O'Keefe, is it? Yeah, I think so. Well, no. Just no. It is not. It is just not. We were talking, yes, or in the last episode, about sometimes going for Foucault's approach and simply responding to an argument with, you have misunderstood, you are an idiot. You are an idiot. And I think, like, someone saying how you feel about statues is how you feel about slavery. That's You should just respond. You have misunderstood. You are an idiot. And actually, I, I did quite like... They they also say that the this line in particular. In Oxford, the university is contemplating removing the statue of arch-ideologue of imperialism, Cecil Rhodes, yes. to a museum where it now belongs. So that's all they say about that, and then basically say that statues aren't permanent. The one by the... Uh, Assistant editor is a lot more rah rah tear it down. 
is he does he refer at one stage as well to the fact that the statues are always the the narrative of the victors or oh yeah he um he does he um his one is uh is a bit of a weird one to be honest so he says the statues we pass every day and sometimes barely notice is less a reminder of how we got here than a declaration of where we want to go and i must say the fact that was written by someone in ireland is astounding because you remember Michael when Dev was asked just after independence if he wanted to remove all of the statues yeah. of British monarchs, and he basically responded by saying, "No, some of them are very pretty." Do you think then, Michael, that he was secretly longing to escape back into the warm bosom of the empire? That was the view. That was the future. Dev was absolutely committed. He was clear about this again and again. The future of Ireland is imperial. It is at the heart and at the bosom of the great British imperial uh, 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 enterprise. I think everybody knows that about Dev. I mean, lads, come on. If you were to go around Dublin today, we are actually, I think, a sadly under-sculptured country. We don't have enough public, decent statues anyway. And we don't have enough fountains. We, it's one of the joys of going to countries like Italy and Spain, whatever. There are all these lovely fountains. We don't have any. But pretty well everything that was ever put up in the state before 1922 would, well, a lot of it anyway, would be perceived as being, inverted commas, problematic. Or has been, these were functionaries or parts of the impressive imperial structure that denied us our agency and blah, 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 etc, etc. But nobody in Ireland, I, no reasonable person is going around saying, We'll get rid of the statue of Coinan, or we'll get rid. I mean, when people when they blew up the Nelson's pillar, my sense I wasn't there, but my sense is that people in Dublin and around the country were rather annoyed and disappointed because they kind of liked Nelson's pillar. They got rid of the statue of Victoria, which had been in the city, and then it was put somewhere in Trinity, and then eventually sold to a city in uh, in Australia. But that was, I think, also part of that was because it wasn't a very nice statue. No, it's it's not. It's it's awkward looking and it's just Big, not great. Sort of fat yuck, but I mean the thing here is that this this is the Irish Times writing about history and it talks the the piece by the assistant editor, which I'll include below, it talks quite a lot about history. But it talks in this purely Americanized sense again, as if he didn't live in a country that had to deal with this, as did most ex colonial countries. And we decided, by and large, Sure, leave them. They're kind of pretty. And also, here's a thing, because statues really, about most things that become symbolic, they just represent the views of the people watching them. Surely, if you hated the people, like uh, those people, you would want their statue there to look over their failures. The single most present thing in an urban landscape, I would say, are the names of streets. Because there's far more streets than anything else in an urban situation. Now, there are quite a number of the streets which ended up being renamed. But in Dublin, hundreds of streets are still, but they kept this, kept the, the, the name that they, they, they were they brought up. There is a Little Britain Street in Dublin. In fact, I don't know if the boys who have recanted from their wickedness uh, in doing, in playing characters which were not of their own race, 
I, I don't know if they're aware of it, but there are streets named after dukes and lords and princes. There's Hanover Streets and Cumberland Streets and John Rogerson's Keys and so on and so forth. But we a decision was made. We were not going to go through the effort, the fag of it, is it of just going street by street by street by street and renaming it. We left it. And I, I don't think we live in this constant sense of being troubled. No, I think that the issue, uh, say around the issue of statues of the Confederacy in the States, is a different issue. Because the States is by a different country with a different history, with different problems and different issues. If I were somebody living in Atlanta or in Savannah or whatever, and I was, I was paying my city taxes... And most city taxes were being go- were were being spent on the maintenance of a statue, say, of Nathan Bedford Forrest, who was a founder member of the Ku Klux Klan. I think it's a fairly reasonable for me, as a taxpayer and an African American, to say, "Do you know what, lads? I have a problem with that. I have a kind of a problem with this guy, founded this bunch of guys who are going to go around the country." whipping and burning and lynching uh, my ancestors because they had the temerity to actually say we should be given the rights which were, were guaranteed by the Constitution of the United States. Well, perhaps then you would agree with the uh, with the assistant editor of the Irish Times when he says that uh, the role of statues is to legitimise or sing- signal approval for the values they represent. The role of statues? Well, Gary, I, 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 I'm puzzled by the, the idea of a statue having a role. I imagine the people who make statues have a plan or a theory. Statues, I, I, I don't think it's an absolutely simple slam dunk thing. I think that different countries and different places have different situations. We talked, we mentioned before that there is in Brussels, or at least there was until last week, a statue of Leopold I, king of the Belgians and owner and runner of the Belgian Congo. No, I would say that the guy, there's a guy who I think you, you really, I don't know if you need, you need to have a statue of him hanging around. It's also worth saying, it's a little bit like comedy, Gary. It's a question of time also. Time is a thing here. Um, Leopold is within, in some sense, within the grasp of our memory. There are photographs. I'm not exactly sure what the human rights record was of the pharaoh who was respo- who was responsible for the building of the Great Pyramid, you know? I have a suspicion that it may not have been great. I know that in the, say, the early dynasties um, of the, in, in, in Imperial China, I'm not sure, I want to say a Shang dynasty, it was the practice that the concubines and servants of the emperor would be entombed with the emperor alive and that's a practice i would oppose gary i think that that uh, in all circumstances well i'm not going to say in all circumstances gary because you know we there are obviously there are going to be exceptions but as a principle i would oppose the live entombing of people in their hundreds you know that was x thousand two thousand years ago whatever it was and i don't know if it's a good idea to go down and deconstruct these things does that is that what they mean to the people of China today? That's the other thing. I mean, it's it's why I think the Irish Times is not just whatever about saying these statues should be brought down. The Irish Times arguments for why, and they never say anywhere in these editorials statues should be torn down. All they do is provide 
sort of a passive backing to other people tearing down statues. Well, you see, yeah, you put you see, you put your finger there on as Gary has wanted to do. One of the central issues here is if we're going to get rid of statues, and you know what, we change our landscapes, we change names, we do things. That is true. What it should not, the context in which it should not be done, is by a bunch of self-appointed authoritarian, authoritarian fascists or Marxists well, here's the other running around the streets Michael. and saying, we're going to do this because we, we're going to make that decision. That's the decision for everybody to make. Do you think if, let's say, uh, there were anti-racist protests in Paris today and there's video of people in the crowd screaming, uh, I believe the phrase is filthy Jews at other people? Yes, yeah. yes. So yes. let's say a left-wing group tore down a Holocaust memorial or a Holocaust statue. Yes. Do you think the Irish Times would have an editorial page saying that, you know, the statues keep falling and man changes his landscape? Well, you see, Gary... Because I don't. Um, I, I would like to... I'd like to agree with you. But I could imagine, for example... Well, maybe a Holocaust memorial is not the best bet for the current left but you know i could imagine somebody saying well actually the meaning of this memorial has evolved and has been deliberately manipulated to being away from being a commemoration of those who died and to being in a way a justification for the fascist state of israel which is grinding down and and destroying the rights of the uh dispossessed Palestinians and insofar as that is the meaning the real meaning the contemporary meaning of what this memorial is when they should tear it down you know they keep say- <laughs> one thing that occurs to me is, well two things really. they keep saying they're going to put them in museums it's going to be very big museums we're going to have to it's a bit like you know, people say put them in prison we're going to have to build more museums Gary to house all these statues and I, I, I you mentioned uh, 1984 and your your reluctance to quote the Orwellian thing I absolutely hate it I, and I, 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 I'm going to say something now which is, I, I, I'm, I'm, sure I say, I'm almost going to say something now which I'm very reluctant to but I will simply advert to this fact we have seen other regimes in the past, Gary, which has gathered together all the bad art and put them into museums where people could go and look at them in the knowledge that this was bad art. And I don't know if that was a great idea. Also, I mean, if the bad statues go, bad art starts going, bad literature is probably not going to be terribly far behind it. Because the principle is actually exactly the same. Well, we note Mark Twain has been under fire for a long time now. Norm MacDonald has his own theory on how to get around that, but we won't go into that. No, we won't go into that there. But I just... The Irish Times, the, this this piece, I think, is not just wrong. But it, it's wrong at some sort of fractal level. Any part of it you... you and for those who don't know, a fractal is a, an infinitely recurring image, which, when you zoom in on it, is actually made of smaller versions of itself. I saw this being tweeted about on Twitter, right? And they're talking about this thing, which is a cliche of history. Oh, well, history is constantly being rewritten. It's always been revised uh, in the way, and we've seen history development and the advent of herstory, which I hate as a word, because it seems to me to be etymologically just disreputable. And and we've had the advent of gender studies and all this, and this is all wonderful and great. And 
this was an opinion agreed with by a friend of mine, and I observed my friend who is a historian. I said, "Yeah, all those people out there with the sledgehammers and the and the nooses putting on the statues. I'm sure they're all historians." Well, this thing, and this thing, I actually I actively dislike about the way the Times is doing this. Nowhere do they say statues should be torn down, but they're doing it in the context of people staring down at tearing down statues. It is a very polite middle class, not justification. But if someone were to bring up the statues being torn down, someone would say, oh, I read an Irish Times thing on that. It's clearly meant to support the tearing down of statues. I don't think they believe anything they're saying other than the fact it's being used in an ideologically appropriate way now. I would be very surprised if their general stance is, should just tear down statues. If uh, And you know what we should do with them? We shouldn't have like a vote. There should be no democratic discussion. They should be torn down by roving bands of people with rope. Yeah. Because, Michael, that's a healthy way that isn't going to lead to a situation where the country doesn't have a single fucking statue left standing. Because everyone is offended by some statue. I am sure that every, I mean, there are certainly there are problems with Oscar Wilde, uh, of, of whom we have statues. There are pro- Jim Larkin was a member of the, inter- of the International. Uh, and Stalinist international at that, and then should we keep should we keep Larkin up? I'm sure there's stuff about Daniel O'Connell that you could find reasons to take him down. Also, from the time for the point of the Irish Times, if you're going to take all the statues down, most of the statues are not are going not going to be from an Irish nationalist Republican tradition anyway, which I can't imagine they would would work well with the Irish Times. I I mean, this is written in a country that has had this issue, that has had many imperial statues that obviously no one approves of because we're not part of the empire. And you would think that would have had some little bit of play on this thing, but it it doesn't seem to have realised what country he's writing this in. But it's not even that they don't approve. It's not that they, it's not that people disapprove either. They they recognise it's a statue from a time which was other. It's not well, now. That's, that's the other thing. It, when he says that they, these statues signal approval uh, of that person and their values, even if that was true, and it doesn't have to be, even if that was true, it is true at the moment of the statue's erection. It is not true now. And then he used the example, he, said, he says, tell a black teenager who has to walk past a statue of Robert E. Lee in Richmond that it's all in the past. Now, I would say, Michael, Robert E. Lee, actually quite a complicated man, probably not the best example for this, but if you were a virulent racist, and you could see through the eyes of your statues, the last thing you'd probably want to see is a black teenager Living a good life. Well, yes, that's the it's the great revenge, isn't it? The good life is the is the is the revenge, and if he's in downtown Atlanta, he's in the the, the what's called the capital of, of of Black America with the largest middle class, and certainly dominates the the political thing. Also, he then brings up cognitive psychology, uh, which is uh, which is always a. And he says that you know, you say that recalling the past is a dynamic shifting process that turns as much on our notions of the future as our grasp of the past. If that's true, the Irish Times have a very twisted and dark view of both the past and the future. And all this is is just projection. I mean, go down smaller than statues. 
I can think of in my little town here, one is a cup maybe two hundred yards from me. One, two, three post boxes, which are proudly declared. Victoria Regina is on one of them. I think Edward Rex and on one and George Rex to the other. So it's in commemorating of queens and the kings. And is anybody bothered? Is anybody agitated? No, because that was the young successful black guy walking past the statue of Lee. I don't know. He, he may he may he may be upset. I have seen many interviews talking about this issue and uh, people in the South seem to have different attitudes. African-Americans in the South to people in the North. Maybe it's a different culture. They seem to be more relaxed, but maybe some of them aren't. I absolutely can't speak to that. But I could perfectly well imagine them going by and say, and looking at the side, you say, see there? See there, Joe? See there? Didn't work out, did it? Well, that's the A statue means nothing in isolation. It's just a particular piling of rock. If the South had won the Civil War, if the South had seceded, and if slavery had continued, and if today in the South you had a a legalised system, a a legal system of oppression of African Americans, well then, going past that statue, absolutely, would be a reminder of the perpetual state of oppression that you lived in. That would be absolutely true. But in the context of the guy lost the war, it, it seems to me the semiotics are rather different. The only thing, you might even say the semiotics are, you you lost the war, but you won Reconstruction. But you know, Reconstruction ended. And then desegregation came and the, the civil rights came. And then just the general uplift and the economic success of African-Americans came. I mean, I am I am actually somewhat looking forward to the obvious reprisals, particularly in England, where we're going to start seeing statues torn down of people that the left likes. And then I'll be very interested to see if there's going to be a sort of, well, you know, this is just history moving on and we've got to accept that these people belong in a museum now. Yeah, but... The- or if there will be a roving band of racists assault statue. But how, how, let's face it, how likely is that to happen? For a start, as we saw, <laughs> talk about, in a wonderful moment of cognitive dissonance, we saw people going down to the statue of, uh, hit uh, statues, uh, to defend the statue of uh, Churchill and down to the Cenotaph and give Nazi salutes. You just think, you know, the argument for compulsory history from primary school up to the age of 30, seems to be getting stronger all the time. Although, who writes the history books, I suppose? <laughs> How do you do that, Gary? How do you go to defend the cenotaph or to defend Churchill and end up giving a Nazi salute? How does that work in your head? I mean, I have heard there were Nazi salutes. I haven't seen the video. Well, I saw I saw some arms go up in what looked like a, a sort of 45 degree angle and straight what the Italians would call the Roman salute. Maybe, maybe not. But my point is that there were far fewer of those than there were in the last week. Although, to be fair, in these violent uh, these violent demonstrations, two policemen were injured. Well, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's gone above two, Michael, now. Is it? Because, well, I'm, surpri- I'm not surprised since these were violent protests. 
Because if you remember last week, in the peaceful protest, 27 were injured. I think so. Six police officers were injured in the um, in it. So just, let's. I, I think we'll just look at the the BBC headlines here. So today's today's headline is London protest. Demonstrators clash with police, and the photo is of uh, people running and kicking. The scene of of turmoil, one might say, Michael. And the BBC headline from last week is. Uh, George Floyd, London anti-racism protests leave 27 officers hurt. That is the edited version that they had to put in place (laughs) after people (laughs) mocked them heavily last week because what they actually said was 27 officers injured in mostly peaceful protests. And they are, they are, we'll put both the articles below and it's good to actually look at them side by side because it's interesting how they are constructed. So last week's one, primarily peaceful, couple of bad apples. This one starts by pointing out that groups, including far-right activists, congregated in the capital, Mm. claiming they were protecting statues from anti-racism activists. Whereas the one about the BLM march is very kind of passive. Things happened. People didn't do them. They just happened. Uh... Here's one, for example. Two officers were seriously injured, including a mounted branch officer who was knocked from a horse when it hit a set of traffic lights whilst appearing to bolt. Now, the horse did bolt. It bolted because it was hit in the face, which would seem like an important thing, because otherwise the horse could have just startled. And it's no one's fault, Michael. By the way, I, you know, it referred to far-right groups as opposed to the BLM. And... As we know, last week it was all over Twitter, all sorts of nice Irish people saying, well, of course we support BLM. And all the politicians saying, of course we support. In the United Kingdom, the soccer teams are now going to play in support of BLM. Yeah, they're going to be wearing jerseys that will replace their names with uh, Matter, Black Lives Matter, which is someone who knows nothing about football, I will say, is going to make the entire thing way easier to bullshit my way through. Now, I thought, uh, uh, you said that on Siri or whatever, when they correct you in your wrong thing, they then give you the link to the Black Lives Matter website. Well, actually, I think that's a good thing, because I would like more people to go to the website. They have a manifesto. And uh, it calls for the destruction of the nuclear family. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents and children are comfortable. Well, I mean, Hillary Clinton did say it takes a village to raise a child. We foster a queer-affirming network. And we are about, we with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking, we embody and practice justice, liberation and peace. In our engagements with one another, we now there you go, peace in our engagements with one another. This is, it's the kind of thing that if you'd come across in the nineteen seventies as a, a, a sort of a Herbert Marcuse Frankfurt School bunch of, oh, I don't know, Bader Meinhofer types would be absolutely at home with this. I I'd love to know if Fine Gael's official policy is in fact. The destruction of the Western-based nuclear oh, family. This is exactly what happened with the Women's Council during the election. 
everyone signed up to their manifesto because no one read the bloody thing. Yeah. And then eventually people started started going, so these these crazy things, you support them. Oh God, do we? Will you sign this manifesto? Bollocks. And then we just move by them because Ireland as a country doesn't question these sort of things. The the BBC article, Michael, on the BMN, uh, BLM protests, do you know how it ends? It ends with a... Um, a bag, not a whimper? Well, it actually, the very end of it is Sadr Khan saying that violence was not acceptable, but this is vital cause. You know, and it was let down by a tiny minority. Tiny. But what it does, it talks about how officers were... Uh, Injured, and then it says, but Asia Ahmed, an activist who attended several of the protests, said these situations didn't come from nowhere. Said she had seen the police acting very aggressively towards protesters, and that a lot of people feared for their lives when they saw the police horses. Yeah, absolutely. These things didn't come out of nowhere. A lot of those police were wearing these little skimpy, little skimpy mini skirts and those belly tops, you know. And like those tiny round shields, they couldn't stop a brick. That's provocative. They were very provocative, Gary. I mean, they, they were getting insulted. So the, the BBC piece on the protests today, the right-wing protests, as they say, doesn't start with that, or it doesn't end with that. In fact, it is substantially longer and goes to a lot more detail to include condemnation of them. The point here is not that one protest is bad and one protest is good. The point here is that the coverage you get and how positive it is doesn't seem to rest on how many police officers you injure. It seems to be entirely on how well your views align with the media. And I think that's actually something very interesting we've seen over the last two weeks, Michael. Um, the amount of resignations and redeployments inside particularly American media indicate that the old idea of objectivity in the newsroom is, is if not dead, dying very quickly. People are getting piled on, sacked, uh, blacklisted for putting forward views that are perfectly defensible, if not correct. Oh yeah, it's the, the uh, as it's been called in the United States by one academic, the purge continues. Uh, if you're looking at people in academia and in news outlets every day, some there's some new poor bastard who just said the wrong thing or looked the wrong way or had the wrong face on at one time and he's gone no hey oh it's, you get kind of tired saying it don't you but it's it it does feel that we have we're at a a, 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 critic, a juncture where since mr gutenberg invented the printing press the whole notion of what the newspaper was about started to evolve in the 19th century, 20th century, to the idea that not about impartiality, nobody pretends to perfect impartiality, but that there was a duty of a, a duty of care if you were reporting the news rather than commenting on the news, that you try to give people as, as much of the context as you could, even if some of that context actually worked against I mean, your, your but we know it's activists we are there was a very I, I saw something in, in the daily mail yesterday um it was actually it was really interesting and people online hated it they 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 tore it apart but what the daily mail did was they um they basically went to the, these statues that people want to take down who are they and then just went what did he do and just had a, the bad bullet points the good 
bullet points. Yeah. And the bad would be things like used slavery. Yes. Was a, was an opponent of sla- of the abolition of slavery. And the good could be anything from like built schools to built London's docks to anything. And people were going, how dare they have a pro and cons list of slave owners? But you sort of go, well, that's, that's history. That's most people not terribly pleasant. Like most people with power, not perfect. Also, so I mean, it's, what do you want? Is this if you do it, then nothing else matters? Or are you saying, yes, there's a pro and cons list, but by God, the Daily Mail doesn't get to do it? Is there, is it because we as white Europeans are more morally evolved and advanced and insightful and spiritual than everybody else? That we're having this kind of conniption at the moment about historical sins? Where all the other parts of the world, where exactly the same sins were committed, they don't, I don't hear this narrative in India, or in China, or in Sub-Saharan Africa, or even the Native Americans of South and Central America. All of, you know, these great slave, owning slave trading empires. Am I missing that? Are the Chinese as we speak, enormously het up by this. No, no. I mean, the Chinese are busy reading the works of Carl Schmitt and deciding exactly what the exception should be. Yeah. That's one of those references designed for absolutely no one. But it's a very good one. We all liked it. We should all read more Carl Schmitt. Even more Carl Schmitt than we're reading at the moment? Oh, it's difficult, Michael, but I'm sure we could fit something fit in. Fit something in. We all had to learn German to read it in the first place, because, of course, so little. They know they've, they've translated a lot of it now. Um, into Chinese, Gary, but Mostly not, into Chinese, But not into English. Uh, for those who don't know, Carol Schmidt was the um, effectively the chief jurist and political theorist of Nazi Germany. And that's the kind of thing, Gary, that would get your statue thrown into a river. Yeah. Yeah. So he... he um, he wrote a lot of theoretical support for the Nazis, like fairly high-level, detailed stuff, um, which is now very, very popular in China. Um, unsurprisingly, because a lot of it was the place of law relative to someone holding total power. Yeah. And how power was defined, and who was sovereign. So the Chinese love it. He is uh, an immense figure there. And then some people in Europe know him, some people in America, and everyone else just kind of forgot he exists, mostly because he's the kind of person who you wouldn't want to promote the work of, so no one talks about him. The Although he actually kind of important in Germany as well. He is, and he, he, his work is actually quite interesting. There's a curious narcissism to this, that we alone committed these awful sins, and that... Or is it that we alone are capable of feeling guilt for them and of growing? There's a curious ahistoricity maybe to it. Is that it? That these people really... You know that phrase ethnocentric, ethnocentrism, mm-hmm. which is the, it's from a phrase from anthropology, which is that when you only see things in the concept, within the confines of your own ethnic group, maybe that's what this is. It's a form of radical ethnocentrism that they only see the world history, they only see things through the, lo- through the, 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 the lens of European history. 
I mean, I spent a good while arguing that most of the progressive left and most of these people are in fact deeply racist. They, they infantilize minorities to an incredible degree and treat them like children who need to either be saved or protected from um, from whites who, by the fact they have agency, can be evil. But, you know, it's, it may be even worse than that because they're also saying that they don't expect the same moral historical standards from other people. They don't, obviously, they don't expect the Chinese historically to have behaved in the way that in a, in a moral way or for our indians or i wonder i wonder michael if there are any statues in england of some of the very rich african kings in, let's say the 16th to 18th centuries like let's say some of the kings of ethiopia for instance or emperor i believe but the emperor's ethiopia. emperor because that's going to be a problem for them because a lot of those guys made their wealth from the african slave trade well Ethiopia had slaves, actually, until in, well into the 20th century. Oh, it did. And then the British... Oh, sorry, no, it, was, it wasn't It was the British. It was the League of Nations. I think it was in the 1920s. Uh, forced them to stop. Yeah, but they didn't really. I mean, I, I think that Haile Selassie, who is emperor... I, I'm trying to remember from that a biography I read of Selassie. Selassie actually issues two different... Uh, suppression um, managed that to the extent that it was but Ethiopia wasn't it wasn't a big player in the slave trade the slave trade was most East East African East Africa Arabs in East Africa but the great the great slave trading empires in 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 the West like as we said before like around the what was called the Gold Coast around Ghana Ashanti Dahomey massive slave markets there I, I don't know you you wouldn't remember but there was a, a enormously successful and popular and powerful television program in the 70s based on a novel by Alex Haley called Roots hmm. and it follows the, the the family of 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 a man and it starts off with this uh, ship pulling into the coast somewhere in West Africa and they go inland and they basically go on a on on a, on a slave hunt, on a hunt to, to capture human beings, in and to inst- and bring them in on the ship. If you read uh, Hugh Thomas's book on the Atlantic slave trade, which is, I think probably the best book I know on the subject. Anyway, better informed people may tweet in or message us and tell us if there's another one. He makes the point that if you were to look at the global scale of a thing, a tiny percentage. Of the people who were brought, who were enslaved, and brought across the Atlantic as slaves, ended up in slavery that way. The vast majority were bought and sold by at slave markets or trades with the 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 whether it was the French, the English, the Portuguese. The Portuguese were the biggest traders, but operating with uh, large African uh, powerful kingdoms, who made a lot of their money and had done. It was part of. His, their 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 indigenous economy was to, uh, the capturing of slaves in warfare, which the Romans had done also famously all over the Mediterranean Empire. But the Romans when when they, when they went to Gaul or wherever, when the ways you made yourself a few quid if a centurion 
was you captured a few people and brought them back to Rome and sold them as slaves. And exactly the same process was practiced. I I didn't realize until quite late that people's view of the slave trade in Africa was of European armies effectively scouring the land for slaves. Because it always seemed far easier that you just... You just pay someone to do that. Now that I, and I think that this image, to the extent that people thought about it at all, actually, genuinely, I think a lot of people of my age and whatever, that goes back to that image of the, that the beginning of Roots. It was a very powerful uh, narrative. And that, they thought, oh, that's how people became enslaved. Which it wasn't. I mean, no, it was for some people it was. African slave traders and a lot of dealing with tribes who were problematic or had been defeated and were then just sold. Yeah. Um, You might actually like this, Michael. This just happened. If you go to Google now and you put in United, uh, sorry, British Prime Ministers, it brings up every Prime Minister in a row, a photo of them. Okay. Winston Churchill's photo has been taken down. No. It just says Winston Churchill and has a black box. Black boxes. We were tweeting black boxes, weren't we? A few days. No, ago. we were, but this has a that's this has an image of a person, and you know the like the yeah, it's the graphic of it. But his is the only goes back to Walpole. Uh, goes back to Andrew Law, and he is the only one who doesn't have a photo. Apparently, it just changed now. No idea what that happened. Could be a technical thing, <laughs> but it's uh, badly timed. Technical thing. Oh, we I one thing to mention on the statues as well, and I mentioned this purely because we were talking about Pretty Patel uh, before. She has called on Winston Churchill's statue to be, um, in her terminology, liberated. Right. Uh, out of the sarcophagus it's been put behind. She said he, um, Sadie Khan, the mayor of London, caved into the mob by not condemning the violence earlier. He's been quite quick out the gate on condemning the violence today. And uh, I quite like Patel. Patel, I think, is one of the is one of the best performers on the Conservative bench. I'll tell you, the reaction to some of her comments in social media from prominent members of the Labour Party and others was disgusting. I mean, how they can get away with saying the kinds of things they were saying about her racial epithets and questioning her ethnicity, etc. And and that's acceptable. That's okay. And they, they get to they get to say that from a position of moral superiority and go unpunished and unsanctioned. It was absolutely horrible. And you have to I mean I have to I don't like you know to do the witchfinder thing. Some of the comments there was a whiff of misogyny about it. That was very strong. I think it, it ties back to what we, what I said there about I think a lot of the progressive left is actually deeply racist. Few, I mean, if you've ever seen the reaction of the progressive left to a minority who does not agree with them. Yeah. Uh, did you see, like, the, the, there was a cartoon of Patel in The Guardian a while ago. And uh, it presented Patel as a, um, like a bull. Yeah. Some sort of bovine creature. Okay. And very quickly was called racist because Patel is of, I believe, Indian extraction. I think I said Pakistani the last time. Gujarati. But I don't, uh, yeah. Her parents friend. are Gujaratis who left India and then went to live in East Africa, in Uganda, and then were kicked out of Uganda by Amin, and they went to live in Britain. It was openly described as racist by other people. I think she said it was racist. The Guardian has said they 
or said they weren't going to take it down, and I think is reaffirmed after she brought it up again that they're still not going to take it down. But there is this, they do not handle minorities disagreeing with them well. And I think that is because, as I said, I think they are racist. I think they think these people are like children, and these children owe them for the things that they have decided to give them. I think it's also interesting if you look, if you in the last number of years, if you track the relationship between elements of the left-leaning media and, say, British Jewish community. I, I think it's a kind of a, 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 it's a virtuous or virtuous circle that as the the British Jewish community would have historically been Labour in much the same way, say, Irish Britons would have been historically massively Labour. It was a solid Labour vote. and But since the 80s, Margaret Thatcher was a famously Semitophile. She had a, a huge amount of admiration for the Jewish family and the Jewish way of doing things, Jewish learning and all that kind of stuff. And had a number of prominent members of her cabinet were Jewish. But because of the growth of certain tendencies within the left and the Labour Party, British Jews have become increasingly disenchanted to the extent that I think one poll in a recent election said something like 80% of British Jews were planning on voting Tory. And as that process has gone on, the hostility to British Jews has just ramped up and ramped up and ramped up. Till we saw, I mean, it was a, it was a, 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 I would say one of the central problems that Corbyn faced as leader of the Labour Party. The belief that possibly he, but certainly the party, had in some sense become, to use the language of the day, structurally anti-Semitic. And that was one of the, that seriously damaged the Labour Party and seriously damaged Corbyn, that perception. But they weren't, maybe that was to an extent that these were people acting out of their box. And we know that that happened. I mean, different ethnic groups, different cultures do different, succeed at different levels of doing different things in different places. So that inevitably causes confusion. They should all behave the same and do the same things and be the same because it makes things much easier if they do that. Anyway, so we, I think we can spend a, an endless amount of time talking Absolutely. about the racism of the left. There is actually some really interesting, not that, sorry, not the left, well, the particular progressives. There is actually some really interesting research on it and their views towards their own race and how they compare to other races' views towards their own race. Uh, white liberals have very odd racial views compared to other races. But we can go into that at um, some another, other time. An, another day. You wanted to talk about Leo. Leo and his finding that the civil service is uh, structurally racist. Well, you see, now, the thing with Leo, and let's, let's be fair, is that, this, let's be fair to us, there's a slight, it's not quite clear in total what all of the comments add up to. But one of the things I think we're, we have been seeing, and I'm not the only one to have said it, is that we seem to be going through this odd moment where, well, no, it's just continuation of a moment where we are importing an understanding of the world as if we were the 51st state of the United States. That we are reacting to the world as if we were in America. That we are react, and we are looking at ourselves and analyzing Irish politics and Irish society as if we have the same historical, cultural context as the United States, and as we have the same, and the, that we have the same problems and the same, and those problems have the same roots and should be managed the same way as the United States. So, on the back of the protests in the United States that have spread out. The whole issue of racism has become a hot-button image. And Leo says, 
We don't see many black or brown judges or in the doll. I'm the only one at the moment, I think. We don't see many presenters on TV, for example, and that needs to change. He then goes on, we have an opportunity not to repeat the mistakes of countries like Britain and France and the US. We can learn from their mistakes around race relations and get it right here. Well, I'm the capacity is the, the capacity of Ireland to learn from the mistakes of other people has yet to be shown in anything. So I'm not I think he's been. But the question I just when somebody starts this particular debate, when you have to recognize that Ireland is coming from a completely different historical cultural context and understanding where we are now. Now, Gary, if somebody could show me that there were structural systemic reasons why it was difficult for a person from a particular ethnic, racial, social group, whatever, to achieve X, Y, or Z, well, then I think that would be a, a serious problem and it would it should be addressed, it should be dealt with. And I think the fact is that we have on the, the books plenty of legislation which is available to deal with that kind of thing that they're but what i want to know is okay leo there are not enough of whatever it is what is the number when we're start if if that's the conversation we are about to get into in ireland today and this is a conversation other countries have been dealing with obsessively picking at and picking at for many many years but they've never asked let's if we're going to start that conversation let's okay tell me leo what is the correct number and why do we get how did you arrive at that number and how so we know where we should be what is the basis for this if we're talking about um we don't have many black or brown judges well i i, I go back to the question i asked you before and something else if the average age of somebody in the doll is 40 i don't know what it is but 40 seems young enough and being reasonable so that would bring us back to people who were born in around 1980 what was the pool? What was the available pool of people from different ethnicities in Ireland? And why is it about colour? What, 8.5% of the of the last census are defined themselves as Europe as as non-white Irish or not white? Non-Irish. So that would presumably be people Polish, Russian, Latvian, Lithuanian. Why is this not an issue? What why do they see diversity purely in racial terms? If we're going to get into this this game, well, then I think we need to get the rules laid down early. Are we going to start to limit the number of doctors graduating in Ireland, for example, that come from the Indian subcontinent? Because it's my suspicion, Gary, based on the numbers that I've seen, that there's a disproportionately large number of people who are going into medicine from that background. I don't know, Michael. I suppose it's... Why are we not talking about? I mean, if we're talking, if 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 we're get, if we're going to get obsessed with race and skin color, why are we not talking Chinese people? Chinese, what is one point five, one point seven percent of the population in the last census? They're a larger a larger ethnic grouping. So, what what do we expect Chinese people? Where should we be looking? How many how many TDs should be there? How many gay TDs should we be having? I mean, there, there? is there is actually an important thing here. And it's something you see a lot in these arguments. And it's the assumption that an outcome that is not exactly representative of the national breakdown of race, gender, sexuality, is in and of itself proof that there is structural racism stopping that outcome. So if 12% of the population are black and 12% of all jobs are not black, 
there is an issue of structural racism relative to that industry. And, and that sounds incredibly simplistic, but that's a real it's a real and major component of a lot of the anti-racism that work is, we're seeing now. Exactly, that's the metric. And that's, it seems to me, this Leo has taken his first step along the road to that kind of analysis. Now, it's also, he seems to be... Re- he, he talks about not repeating the, the, the problems of other countries. If you read people like Thomas Sowell and Walter Williams, the economists, the American economists and thinkers, Thomas Sowell particularly makes the point again and again and again that people very often confuse political power with economic uh, advancement. And Sowell makes the point that the single most successful ethnic group in the United States from the 19th century into the 20th century were the Irish. And yet, they were the last of the ethnic groups, the European ethnic groups, to actually take off economically because they made the fundamental mistake, whether deliberately or accidentally, whether it happened, that they confused political power with economic advancement. Historically, in the United States, Chinese and Japanese people have been politically uninterested, have been the subject of quite extensive legal discrimination, but have become, by most metrics vastly successful at a level of economics income wealth the amount of wealth that they hold etc it's also not a question of race i mean if we look at nigerians one of the most successful of the recent uh ethnic groups in the united states are nigerians at the level of people holding degrees holding postgraduate degrees Median family, median family incomes, average wages. Nigerians are doing very well, but that's not a racial issue. That's that's the, there's a, there's obviously a cultural issue here. These things are far more complicated. Thomas Sowell talks about the fact that if you look at piano making, Germans all over the world in the nineteenth century, wherever they went, whether it was South America, North America, Australia, whereas Germans dominated the business of making pianos. Pubs. If you go around the world and you do a quick count of all the pubs in a location, do you think that the Irish will be overrepresented in that? I absolutely know for a fact they are. are they struck, was there structural racism forcing them to set up Irish bars? Was there structural racism stopping other people opening up bars? I remember talking to a guy back in the 90s. It's Every other bar that opened in Milan was either a Latin American cocktail bar or an Irish pub. Talking to a guy who had... Uh, had a pub in the 70s and the 80s and he said every so often there would be an attempt by somebody a brewery in England to, to launch English pubs I said it just never took just never happened I said then one day somebody started in opening up Irish pubs and it wasn't just Italy Italy, Germany, France, Russia everywhere Irish pubs enormously successful why? it wasn't nobody had there was, there was, there was no particular it was a it was a cultural artifact which happened to be successful economically. You look all over Southeast, you look at South Asia, Chinese have been consistently the object of discrimination and hostility, both socially and at a legal level. All over South Asia, outside of China, they, the Chinese have suffered at the hands of the local government. And yet, they have constantly done well. It's a fundamental error to assume that going down the political route is the, is the way that you actually advance economically or so- socially or culturally, you advance a group of people. 
But that's inevitably the way the politicians think, because politicians think they're the only people, and politics is the only way of doing something. I will, I will, just before we close up, Michael, because we're on the topic of race, Niall Collins has very particular views about Israel. He does. And I believe it was last year he was called up by the Israeli ambassador and accused of using anti-Semitic uh, conspiracy theories, effectively. Yeah. So he was talking about a large Jewish lobby controlling certain aspects of America. Yeah. During the week, I don't know if you saw this, one of the... So the Israeli ambassador has a Garda entourage. I think it's only one guard. Now, if you've ever met the Israeli ambassador, there's usually far more of what I assume are uh, Israeli military or Mossad around him. Um, so one of the, 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 one of the, or the only guarded bodyguard with the Israeli ambassador, there was what they term an accidental discharge of a firearm. But every time I hear that, I assume negligent discharge of a firearm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Firearms don't generally just go off. Yes, yes. And Niall Collins popped up uh, at this news and he said it was terrible. But he was also going to raise at the highest level, Michael, the question of how much it cost to give a security detail to certain ambassadors. When not all ambassadors might have them, Michael. No. And I was just looking at it, I was like, this is not, no, this is, this is, uh, I would, I wouldn't say this publicly because given your history, it just sort of looks like you're going, the Jewish ambassador, why are we paying for his protection? And of course, someone did come along and go, because of all the countries, if anyone is going to be shot, they're fairly high up there. It's less likely that it's going to be the ambassador from Luxembourg. Yeah, like very few people are going to kill the Swiss ambassador. There's very few reasons to do it. Whereas Israeli ambassadors traditionally, and particularly in Ireland, because we are considered to be one of the most anti-Israel countries outside of the Middle East. Um, yeah, there would probably be a security detail. But I just, I just loved him popping up and being like, oh, it was terrible that there was an accidental discharge. But I don't like us spending money on the Jews. You know, you surely should, there should be a moment where you should be able to capable, be capable of saying to yourself, I won't this time. <laughs> I'll just say nothing. But you looked at it and you're just like, I'm, I'm sure you don't like spending money on Jews. No, no. indeed. Um, maybe you might want to say that less publicly or finesse it slightly. Like, you don't want to start popping up and be like, I just don't think the Israeli ambassador should have a bodyguard for no reason. Yeah, because I, mean, I, I think most people, <laughs> most people, if you were sort of to put a list of 10 or 20 ambassadors in front in front and say, which of these do you think actually is most in need of protection? I think a lot of people would say that the, the Israeli ambassador is in your top three. I mean, let's face it, ambassadors, for God's sake, this is a group of people that they, they went, they, they went and killed people because they were going to run fast in the Olympics and happen to be from Israel. Although I would strongly suspect that if we told the Israeli embassy that we were removing the guard of protection detail, their security plans would not even be amended. Not massively, no. In fact, there might be a sense of, oh, well, thank God for that. We don't have to worry about (laughs) We don't have to to tell him what we're doing anymore. Also, obviously, I mean, if he's capable of shooting himself in the foot, he'd be capable of shooting them in the foot too. 
And there might be a certain nervousness about, oh, God, he's got a gun. Why do sure. they give him a you know, gun? You know the saying, like, that's just a curiously specific denial. Yes. It's it's just a curiously specific thing to get upset about. It is. I think that is definitely one of those moments where, you know, it's like... You, 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 I, just, I, I, love it. I love the idea of, well, you know, Jews are controlling America. And have you ever thought that the Jewish ambassador has... Too much protection around him. I'm just throwing it out there. <laughs> it's one of those moments where you think, I, I, I don't I'm know, sh- if, if Niall is married, I think he, he probably is. That's one of those moments where his, his wife or his significant other should have said, now, dear, I, I, I don't think so. Let's come away from Twitter and have a cup of coffee. Come on, come on. And I'm not, I'm not implying that he meant it in that way at all. I'm just saying it looks a bit weird. The optics. And now he did later delete the tweet, which then actually just makes you look kind of guilty and is of no use because by the time you've deleted it, it'll have been screenshot anyway. So don't don't ever do that, kids. Yeah. Let's face it, we've all been there. You get through a scandal by just never apologising. If you're ever in the situation where you've got your finger hovering over enter and you're thinking, should I? The answer is always no. Always. If you've ever wondered, should I do it? No. Once you've got that question in your head, then the answer is no. Partic- well, certainly if you're if you're a member of parliament, the answer is always no. Safest thing to tweet. Um, lovely day here. Gosh, isn't it a beautiful, isn't so, a, a beautiful county, inserting whatever county you happen to be in. Other than that, I, I think you stay away from Twitter. Do All remember, right. if, if you ever have a scandal break against you and you're tempted to apologise, don't do it. Think instead of the Run the Jewels DJ Shadow song, Nobody Speak. And particularly <laughs> the line that says, I will walk into a court while it wrecks, screaming, yes, I am guilty, motherfuckers, I am death. <laughs> it's just going to be more effective because no one cares about your apology there's no absolution here. It's also a really good song if you haven't heard it before. If you like that sort of music, it's it sounds like poetry, absolutely. Anyway, uh, it's a time I think, very much time to draw a veil over this particular episode, and wish our listener a good Sunday, good Shabbos, and oh, the Shabbos is over. Now. I think we will have. Uh, we should have an interview on Wednesday. Um, assuming it doesn't fall through at the last moment, with uh, Colin Wright, who is one of the editors of Quillette, and he is a uh, PhD in biology. Oh, dear. So we'll be talking about that sort of stuff. Oh, God. And gender, and if it's a uh, spectrum. Can I disassociate myself from everything now? Because I don't want the hate. I've seen what... J.K. Rowling has a billion quid in the in the bank. And the prospect of making more. I must say, her people are very pleasant to deal with. Yes. And and I'm sure she can afford a security detail. I am not J.K. Rowling, so whatever Gary and this person talk about, I wasn't there. I didn't do it. I find your constant attempts at like creating space there where no one is going to see space cute. Yeah, I know. It's 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 as a as Just a start friend. screaming I disavow over and over. Yeah. As I, somebody said to me, uh, one of these days you'll be you, you'll be put they'll be putting you up against the wall and you'll be shouting Odin, 
Thor, Freya. Because in the desperate hope that you'll hit on the right deity to protect you and save your life. Yeah, I, I, there's always hope, Gary. There's always hope. But other than that, we shall be back on Monday, hopefully, with that interview. But if not, we'll be back in more cogitations and reflections on the state of the world. Till then, bye-bye. All the best.